Will you pray with me? Holy and gracious God, Father, Lord, we give you thanks for this day. Open our hearts and our minds and our ears to where you are leading us this day and into this time of discipleship. Turn out our distractions so that we may focus entirely upon your word speaking to us. And Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing to you, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. I'm kind of curious for a moment. Did you ever tell a family member or a, a child when they were growing up, or maybe you were told, to avoid a certain section of town? Maybe you've given some directions to someone else to tell them that they needed to avoid a certain part of town in order to keep safe, to keep out of trouble. Because if you drove down that area, likely something bad would happen. Does any of that sound familiar to you? Have you ever told someone to avoid the west end of Huntington or maybe 20th Street down to about 26th Street? Have you ever told someone to avoid a part of town because you just heard nothing but bad things? Or you believe that nothing but bad things happened in that part of town? Growing up in Shady Spring outside of Beckley, anytime I wanted to go to work at the Beckley newspapers, there were two options for me to go. I could go up Kanawha Street or I could go to Fayette Street. Both of those streets took you to downtown Beckley. Fayette Street was the first street that you came across on Raleigh Hill. It took you around the, the rim of the plateau on Raleigh Hill, around the United Mine Workers Office around, uh, I think it's Black Knight Golf Club. It takes you around some of the places and takes you around Stratton, what was Stratton Junior High and Park Junior High and into downtown Beckley. Kanawha Street took you up a steep incline, a little bit more of a steep incline on Raleigh Hill and then a steep incline around Kanawha Street. You had a blind turn from people coming off Eisenhower Drive and down 19 and down Raleigh Hill, and you had to just judge it just right to cut off and go into Kanawha Street. But Kanawha Street would take you around some nicer homes, some nicer churches. It would take you around what used to be Beckley Junior High and some of those places. Beckley College, now West Virginia Tech. My family, when I was learning how to drive, and even before that, always said, you don't drive on Fayette Street. If you ever have to go to, North, to Beckley, if you ever have to go to Kanawha Street, you always go up and cut off the road and go up to Kanawha. Now, sometimes it made more sense to take Kanawha, but a lot of times it was easier just to take Fayette Street. That was a banned road. You avoided it at all costs. You didn't take that road. And the reason why you didn't take that road is my family believed that if you drove down that road, something bad would happen. It was the bad part of town. And the only reason why it was the bad part of town 
It's because that part of town was where the majority of the minority population of Beckley lived. It broke my heart then and broke my heart now, or breaks my heart now, I should say. But we do this, don't we? We set up these boundaries, we set up these walls, we set up these rules of where you're allowed to go or not allowed to go to because we look down upon someone else. We look at others as if they are less than, as if we shouldn't even build relationships with them or even that there is no way that we should even share the good news of Jesus Christ with them. And I wonder how much those moments in our lives, and I wonder how much those interactions in our lives connect to something that is going on with Jesus in our story today that Emily read for you a little moment, a little bit ago from John chapter 4, verse 1 through 26. In that story, we are told of Jesus leaving Judea and the area around Jerusalem, and he's heading out of town. He's heading out of Jerusalem. And he's going back towards Galilee and Cana. The end of chapter 4 takes us back to Cana. And we've been in this Cana to Jerusalem to Cana pathway in chapter 2 to chapter 4. And Jesus is leaving Judea and Jerusalem. And he's doing so because of some concerns or some questions about his ministry practices. Some people are are questioning him, and he's wanting to leave. But he doesn't leave by the normal practices of a Jewish person of that time. The normal practice for a Jewish person of that time would be to go up what we would know today as the West Bank or Palestine, go up through that area and go straight up around the Dead Sea and up towards the Sea of Galilee and to hit Capernaum and Nazareth through that route. You would take the far side of the road in order to avoid Samaria. Now, Samaria was one of the Palestinian regions of that time. You had Samaria, you had Galilee, and you had Judea. And Samaria was in what is mostly the middle section of modern-day Israel today. But Samaria in the biblical times was akin to ancient Israel of the northern tribe. If you remember in our readings of 1st and 2nd Kings, you see that the tribes separate after King Solomon's death. You have the southern kingdom of Judea, centered around Jerusalem. And then you have the northern kingdom of the northern tribes known as Israel centered around Samaria. The key difference between Samaria and Judea was about their worship practices. While both had similar stories of people coming in and defeating them and taking over their land, the things that they held apart for one another was their worship practices. And for the people in Samaria, their practices centered around only looking at the first five books of what we know as the Bible or the Old Testament today, the Pentateuch. 
the books defined by known as the books of Moses. But they also worshipped on a different mountain, Mount Gerizim. Mount Gerizim is a little bit north of Jerusalem, a little bit north of the main Sumerian cities. And it's there that Abraham is known to have built perhaps his first altar, as well as perhaps where Joshua and others came across into the Holy Land for the first time. It's there that the Samaritans worshipped and had their key central point. For the people of Judea, it was Jerusalem. It was where King David set up his kingdom. It was where he set up his place of worship. The temple was built upon Mount Moriah, where they believed that that was where Abraham likely had to go because of God's leading to offer a sacrifice of Isaac. And God then provided a lamb in Isaac's place. These two differences, people that had similar backgrounds, similar stories, similar narratives, but yet different worship practices, led them to be so apart from one another that the Jewish people of the time would take the longest way around just to avoid them. Would not even converse with them, would not even talk with them, build relationships with them, wanted nothing to do with them. Jesus, however, goes up that northern route that took him into Samaria. and goes purposefully into this region, into this outsider region, into this place of unacceptance according to the Jewish people of the time. And goes to travel back to Galilee. And as he does, he stops along a well because he's tired. He's exhausted. He's looking for something to drink. And so he goes to this well at the noon hour of the day looking for water. And as he comes across this well, Jacob's well, likely planted by, built by Jacob, he finds this woman who's coming out to get water for her family for that day. Now, it's not uncommon for women to be the ones who would gather the water for the day, but they usually did it earlier in the day. And it became a high social point and a high social place of connection. So there's something interesting about this woman only coming in the middle of the day to gather the water. And perhaps we get a little bit of something about that in this narration of the fact that she has five husbands and she's living with someone that was not her husband. There are commentators after commentators that try to understand what is taking place in that description of her. Some argue that it's a story that should be seen as symbolic of the five false gods of Samaria. There's others that argue that she was a prostitute. There's others that argue that She just had a bad luck at life and ended up with five husbands. And there are some that would just dismiss that narration point altogether. 
I think what the text is pointing at is something very specific in that she had five husbands. I don't think Jesus condemns her for it. I don't think there's any judgmental aspect to it other than the fact she had five husbands. Sometimes life happens. We don't know why she could have had divorces. She could have had some unfortunate situations with husbands passing away. We just don't know. And nor is it significant to really understanding the whole of the story other than what is used a little bit later. But this woman comes up to Jesus. And Jesus starts talking with her. Now, if it wasn't enough of a red flag that Jesus has led, presumably not just himself, but his disciples, because we're told that his disciples have gone off to find food and water and drinks and, and anything else. If it's not enough of a red flag that Jesus didn't take the more acceptable, longer route, but he's cut through all the way up to Samaria. It's now another red flag that here he is as a, as a rabbi, as a leader of the faith, as a man, a single man at that, who's talking to a woman. Now, that was a big no-no. You didn't talk as a man, a single man, to a woman, especially if she was presumed to be married to someone else. You didn't do it, especially in public. You especially didn't do it if you were a rabbi. And so here Jesus is, laying out along the well, tired, resting, and he simply looks at her and says, can I have a drink of water? A simple request, recognizing that the man is thirsty. And it becomes an entry point into a dialogue. She's shocked. She is shocked that Jesus would even talk to her. It wasn't necessarily the Samaritans that refused to engage those of, of the Jewish culture and the Jewish religion. It was mostly the Jewish people of that time, not today, of that time, that refused to do so. And so here's Jesus, a Jewish person, a Jewish rabbi, talking to her. And she's amazed and she's in awe, and she's like, why do you want, to get, want me to get you a drink? Don't you have your own ladle? And that starts the conversation deeper. And Jesus says, look, if you only knew the type of water I could give you, you would never thirst again. Now this woman's probably thinking, great, I never have to carry this this jug again ever in my life. So what is this water that you're asking for? Or that you can give me? And Jesus says, I can give you living water. Now living water is a phrase that we have come to see in biblical terms as a reference to God, but we need to understand it in the ways that it was understood in the culture that time to help us to understand a little bit more about exactly what Jesus is saying by saying, I can give you living water. Living water was to use to describe any water that was moving along a current on its own, 
freely. It wasn't water that was stagnant in a pool or in a mud puddle or a well. It was water that was moving and fresh and going down the valleys and the streams. It's waters that you would see in a, in a creek stream or a mountainside falling down off into the cliffs or a river that was moving. Living water was so important to the people that it's what was used to be gathered up in order to fill the purification jars, seen as holy and a sign of living life. And Jesus uses this image of moving water, water that is alive, water that is moving and deep to signify what God can do in a person's life. That living water of faith, that living water of belief in Christ, in God's holy presence. When that living water is filling into our hearts, it moves into us and it comes living and filling us up and transforming us into a new person. Jesus is offering her an opportunity to be fresh and refreshed and transformed by water that renews us into a deeper life in God. He's offering her a deeper life defined by God's holy presence in her life. Not defined by boundaries, not defined by where someone worships or where someone doesn't worship. Defined by being in a deep relationship with God and with other people that is renewed and strengthened by God present and alive through spirit and the truth in that person and in that community. This woman's intrigued. She doesn't entirely get what Jesus is saying just yet. And so she says, can I have some of this water, please? thinking it would just renew her for a moment. Jesus says, sure, go get your husband. And the woman says, look, I, I don't have a husband right now. Jesus says, you're right. You've had five husbands, and the person you're living with is not necessarily your husband either. He doesn't say this to condemn her. He doesn't say this to judge her. He says it in order to say, I know more about you than what you know. And I'm offering you a new life. I don't care about any of that stuff. I just care about you. And the woman is amazed by this and says, you know, we've always expected the Messiah. Now her understanding of the Messiah was of a new Moses. A new Moses who would come to bring the deeper truth of God and redeem the people once again. It wasn't a promise as it was for the people in Judea of a new David who would come to reestablish the kingdom. It was of God's truth. 
of a new Moses to come. So Jesus uses that moment of curiosity, an expression of some understanding of the Messiah to say, I am he. I am the one who has been sitting with you. I am the one who has been working with you, walking with you, talking with you. I am the one who has been present in your life and I'm offering you something magnificent, a new life, a deeper life, a holy life. As soon as Jesus says that, his disciples come back into the picture And they're just shocked that Jesus would be talking with this woman and talking with a Samaritan. The woman leaves. She goes back to her family. She goes back to her friends. She goes back to her community. She says, I've seen the Messiah. I've seen this man and he knows everything about me. And her testimony about what God has done in her life through Christ leads others to faith. Leads others to experience the living waters of God that transforms, that renews, and leads us to a deeper, holy, powerful life in God. All because Jesus was willing have a conversation with someone that he had likely been told by others was off limits. Willing to go and have a conversation with someone that society said you don't talk with. The willingness to engage and reach out beyond the acceptable norms and boundaries of the time provided an opportunity to share new life and an opportunity to experience the waters of Christ in a deeper way. So I wonder today for us, where might God be calling us to step out of our comfort zone to step out of our comfortabilities, to step out of our boundaries, to share the good news of Christ with someone. Who are our Samarias? The people we've been taught to and told our entire lives that under no circumstances are we ever to go and share the good news with them or under no circumstances are they welcomed in our church or under no circumstances shall we even drive our car to go to? Who are those people that we have shunned but yet God calls us to go to? Who are the people that we've turned our backs on? Yet God goes towards. Those very people that we've turned our backs on and say they're not welcomed or we drive away from or we look down on 
or tell others to just avoid at all costs because of our prejudices or our biases. Those very people, those very groups of people are the very ones that God goes to and says, can you give me a drink of water? Because I want to talk to you about living water. And the funny thing is, too, God doesn't just go to those people. Those very people that we have said are off limits with the offer of living water. He calls us to go to them today and build bridges and enter conversations and have relationships that share hope and grace and joy and learn from one another to experience new life together. I think if we do that, we will find that we will be the ones just as renewed by the living waters of Christ and strengthened in our relationship with God and find new ways of life in broken and hurting times more than anyone else. Who might God be calling us to reach across with the good news? Who might God be calling you to reach across with the good news? We pray for you. Most holy and gracious God, Father, Lord, we give you thanks for this day. Help us to share your good news with every person, no matter who they may be, no matter where they may be, no matter what they may be. So all may know your love. In Christ we pray. Amen.